Well, this morning, uh, we continue in our consideration of the book of First Peter, the letter of Peter to the church. It's been a few weeks since we were together, but in past weeks, we considered the person of Peter, who he was as an ordinary fisherman who was used by God for great purposes, a man with a very particular personality, and the Lord would use that as a part of his ministry, sometimes just overcoming that personality and all of its zeal, but using it for the good of the church, flaws and all, warts and all. We also considered Peter's audience, who he was writing, that these were what he calls elect exiles, people chosen by God who had been scattered throughout the earth. And that scattering, we were reminded, had both a human and a divine element to it. They had been scattered by Claudius, emperor of Rome, as an act of persecution, but that was under God's divine sovereignty. And there's a very true sense in which they were purposefully placed where they were because of God's sovereign hand and being at work in doing something for the future of the church. And then, in last, last time we were together, we considered the divine sovereignty of God and what Peter has to say in God's amazing grace to save sinners, to show mercy, to elect some and yet not others, and to do so with a love that he calls a foreknowledge, a foreknowing, a foreloving of a people. And this is overwhelming news, and it's overwhelmingly good news. And now this morning, we're going to ruminate, we're going to return and visit on other truths in what is that long run-on sentence in the Greek that Peter offers these people. And so our passage this morning is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, and then verse 13. Give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, You greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexplicable, 
inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. Let's pray for the Lord's help in understanding His Word. Lord, would You open our eyes to see? Would You open our ears to hear? And Lord, would You open our hearts and soften our hearts to believe the good news by faith that You've offered us in Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. In 1950, long before I was born, the world was introduced to the Peanuts Gang, thanks to Charles Schultz. Now, those of you of a certain age immediately know of Charles Schultz and the Peanuts Gang. Um, Maybe those who are younger uh, would remember or, or think of the character when I say Charlie Brown. But Charles Schultz introduced the, peanut, the Peanuts Gang to an American audience in 1950. And that came on an important context for those who would become the lovers of all things Charlie Brown and Snoopy. Before the 1950s, in the late 1930s and 40s, we had been introduced to other comic strip characters like Superman and Batman, and the concept of invincibility. And we loved those things. American culture loved those things because everybody knows the need for a superhero. Then came the Peanuts gang. Then came the introduction of an ordinary gang of children who were anything but invincible. We were introduced as a culture to Linus and his attachment issues with a blanket. We were introduced to Schroeder and his preoccupation with the liberal arts and Beethoven. Peppermint Patty and her prowess in sports and yet her failures in the classroom. And then there was Lucy who knew everything. And her cunning deceitfulness against Charlie Brown and her refusal to let him ever kick that football. I still despise Lucy for that reason. (laughs) And then there is, of course, Snoopy, who evolved over time from a four-legged pet to a two-legged upright creature who had every kind of human characteristic and personality type. And then lastly, and most importantly, was Charlie Brown himself. Ordinary, unspectacular Charlie Brown. And his heartache over the little red-headed girl whose affection he could not win. Charlie Brown is remembered and was known 
for his inability to be happy because he, quote, knew that that's when he was vulnerable to disappointment that would hurt the most. So Charlie Brown, in so many ways, captured the American attention in a world of superheroes that were invincible. Suddenly, we were introduced to just an ordinary Joe who was anything but spectacular. He couldn't even kick a football. And America and American youth and American families fell in love with Charlie Brown because they could connect with him. He was realistic. They were realistic to their experiences, and they became the number one comic strip, even above and beyond the superheroes. Charlie Brown, and the reason I tell you that story is he had a particular phrase that he frequently said, and you could fill in the blank and say what it was probably, but his phrase that he said the most was, good grief. And that came to my attention this week as I was chewing on this section of Scripture. Good grief. I want you to think about that phrase for a moment. What's so good about grief? Grief is horrible. What's good about grief? It's a figure of speech, but what is good about grief? And you know, actually from a Christian perspective, there's a sense in which grief is good for us. The miseries of this life, the things that grieve us, what do they do for the Christian? They turn our attention elsewhere where our hope truly lies. If you're a believer in Jesus, if you're a Christian, we can't be confused by the world and think that our hope is here because these bodies, as as we've been reminded of earlier in Scripture, they are wasting away. But these are but light and momentary trials, the Christian worldview says, the Bible says. And we are receiving an inheritance that far outweighs them all. Amen? So in that sense, we could say, we could begin with a word of good grief this morning. And I almost called the sermon that, but then I decided, nope, that's, that is a point related to what Peter is saying But actually, his point is a little bit different in our passage. So we're going to preach good grief another day. This morning, Peter's real point is to those who are suffering grief. To those who are in the midst of grief. And he does want to encourage them. He wants to teach them to not be surprised by grief. That they have, quote, had to suffer. But he wants them to know that they are able to rejoice in that grief. And in all this, in my own language, I'll say it this way. Peter is preparing us for the normal Christian life, for what to expect. Okay? So this is normal Christian thinking, this is normal Christian living according to Peter and according to the Bible. So with that said, here's what I hope to communicate to you this morning. Christians, all of us who are Christians, are called to suffer. Every one of us. It's not some of us. It's all of us. We will suffer. But we are able to rejoice in the midst of suffering because our hope is set elsewhere. We're not surprised by suffering. We expect it. And our hope was never fixed or set in this life 
in this flesh, in this blood, it has always been elsewhere. It's always been heavenward. So three simple points this morning. They're all from Peter. That they're, they're what he is teaching these Christians who have been spread about. They've been scattered. They've lost their homes. They are living through persecution and hardship. And he wants them to know that they have been called to suffer. Therefore, don't be surprised by the many griefs that you experience in this life. The larger context of this, by the way, is not just Claudius and their being dispersed by Claudius. I want you to think with me a moment, something I've talked about in the past, and that is, let's remember that God's people, since the Garden of Eden, have always been homeless. They've always been waiting for a promised land. They've always been wandering since the fall and the sin of Genesis chapter 3. So you have the immediate context that Peter is writing to of these people being dispersed from their homes, scattered about, they're being ostracized, they're being treated poorly, they're being persecuted. But really that's a retelling of a story from Genesis 3. That God's people have been homeless, on the move, awaiting promise in a hostile land. And so that's always been the Christian story. There's, there's nothing new here for them or for their predecessors of Israel or for us, right? But we tend to think that this is our home. This is where we live. And Peter is reminding them that our home is not in this place. Our home is ultimately in heaven. So don't be surprised when you suffer some of the many miseries of living life in a sinful world. Matt Smethurst says on this, Ever since the Garden of Eden, suffering has been woven into the fabric of the human experience. We all live and move and have our being amid sin's wreckage. There's our context. Every one of us, ever since the Garden, every one of God's people has lived in the midst of wreckage. And there is hurt, there is pain, there is ruin, there are disasters and diseases, there are disappointments and discouragements, there is depression, and there are defeats. That is life in a sinful world. And you no doubt have found that to be true. Not only are there the common miseries that every human being lives through, but Peter is also saying there's something specialized towards these people. And that is their faith in Jesus. Because they have faith in Jesus, not only will they suffer the common miseries of this life, but they will now be persecuted because of their faith in Jesus. So it's even harder for them. And Peter wants them to know, do not be surprised when you face persecution because of your faith in Jesus. And thinking about this, we can think of, of Scriptures elsewhere that, that talk about harm that has come to God's people. You remember the telling of Alexander the metalsmith who had caused great Harm to the apostle. Or Demas, who we're told in Philippians chapter 1, verse 24, he had been a faithful co-laborer to the apostle in ministry. But then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, we're told that he had become a deserter of the ministry. He had fallen in love with this world, with the trappings of this world. 
and he had abandoned the apostle. And that hurt, that wounded the apostle. He was abandoned and forsaken. He was experiencing persecution in the midst of this world because, because of his faith. Now listen, the same thing is true for every one of us. And we're only deceiving ourselves if we pretend that it's any different. It is what we're told to expect, whether we're young or old. We're prepared for it, and we should not be surprised by it. In our own context, you know stories from the news. I could give any number of them, but I remembered this week one from Washington State, uh, right around as COVID began, I believe it was. But there was a Christian football coach who taught in a public school. Do you remember this? And he was praying at the 50-yard line after games. And some of his teammates, and eventually his whole team, would come and would join him in prayer. He was told, you can't do that. Now, right or wrong, he did it anyway. And he was fired. He lost his job. He lost his livelihood. But he dug in his heels and he sued. And eventually, eventually, the Supreme Court supported him, upheld his freedom, his speech, his ability, his opportunity to pray, and he was reinstated in this world, in this life. He then coached one more game and he left his job, which was an interesting part of the story. Do you know why he left his job? Because he had an ailing loved one. And he now felt that the call of Scripture on his life was to tend to an ailing family member. So he once again sought to be obedient to Scripture. And everybody thought he was crazy. But he did what he thought was faithful and true, just as he had done the praying with his team at the 50-yard line. We live in a world that is quick to turn on the exercise of faith. The stories are around us all the time. And that's a story of persecution of one kind. I could give more of persecutions of blood and to the point of death of martyrs around the world who have given up far more than the role of a, of a football coach. These stories are all around us all the time and sometimes the news covers them. To all of those stories, Peter would say, don't be surprised by it. This world is not going to understand you. They do not understand your faith in Christ. They do not understand your desire to walk with Him, to serve Him as the resurrected Lord of the universe. So don't be surprised when they despise you, when they reject you. They rejected the Lord first, and so they will reject His disciples. That's the context. It was the context for Peter. It's the context for us today. And Peter says to expect it. Students, expect it. Employees, expect it. That's the world in which we live. Dan Doriani, in his commentary on 1 Peter, former professor of mine, says this. Suffering is a result of true conversion. Following the one true God requires that we abandon all the gods of popular culture and society. When our beliefs, morality, and practices are not normal, they are exceptional, which makes them oppositional. 
If we face no opposition when living in a non-Christian culture, we are surely fitting in to get along. If we do anything that pushes against the norms of the world, there will always be hard pushback. Peter says to expect it and to rejoice in it because it is proving your faith genuine. Amen? That is the message of Peter. Don't be surprised by it. If you are being ostracized for your faith, if you're being belittled for your faith, if you are in any way, large or small, being persecuted because of your faith in Christ, Peter said, I told you so. Don't be surprised by it. That is part of the job description of the Christian life. It is what we signed up for. Now, I remember as, uh, when I graduated from college and I was living on my own. This is all pre-cell phones. Some of you will remember this. I would get phone calls. We would get calls on our phone trying to sell us long-distance uh, carrier plans. Do you remember this? And, and the action of the day, the strategy of the day, is to offer 10 cents a minute. And youth, you're hearing that correctly. You would be charged 10 cents a minute for every minute on the phone. And that was the good deal. The bad deal was the 25 cents a minute plus. Unbelievable how much money we paid for this back then. Well, here's what would happen. You would say, oh, that's great, 10 cents a minute, sign me up. But the fine print that wasn't explained was what? Some of you remember, you fell victim to this. After 30 days, it went from 10 cents a minute to 30 cents a minute, right? They jacked it up to you on you and didn't tell you about, about the date. You didn't know what you signed up for. You signed up for the 10 cents a minute, but they didn't tell the full story, right? Well, this morning, let's tell the full story of what it is to be a follower of Christ Jesus. It means to have your sins forgiven, which we have celebrated in this service. Amen? It means to have your sins forgiven. And it means you're going to be persecuted. And that's what we tend to not talk about. But Peter demands that we tell the whole story. We don't sell a 10 cent a minute gospel. We tell the whole story. Anyone who follows the Lord Jesus will be persecuted. Now, everybody's going to suffer in this life because everybody's flesh and blood. The difference is when disease and discouragement and depression come against you, you have an ultimate faith in Christ that overcomes. Imagine facing those things without faith in Jesus then it really is just left up to you. And that's nothing but bad news. Peter says, suffering's going to come, but you have an inheritance that far outweighs these light and momentary troubles, as the Apostle Paul called them. So consider that. Suffering is coming. It's part of the job description. It is what we signed up for. We are not to be surprised by it. Still not convinced? Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 to 12. Actually, 10 and 11 maybe. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Jesus says prepare for it. It's coming. You're going to be insulted. You're going to be persecuted. People are not going to like the fact that you follow Jesus Jesus says to his own disciples. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, which somehow 
I don't have printed in front of me. That's what we call a mistake. Paul says, we face all these hardships. We are hard-pressed, he says, on every side. Calamity comes against us. And then he says, but we are not destroyed by these things. These things, as bad as they are, the diagnosis, the disease, the discouragement, the depression, as bad as it is, the hard pressure that it is, it does not destroy you. It does not ultimately undo you if your faith is in Jesus. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, verse 7 and 11, endure hardship as discipline. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Everything about the Scriptures, Old Testament and New, says prepare for hardship. Prepare for suffering in this life. It is coming, period. And then it lets us know you are not alone. If your faith is in Jesus... You are not alone in that suffering. And not only are you not alone, but that suffering is actually used for your good. God has a purpose in it. Even if that purpose is as small as turning your attention from being earthly in your thinking to remembering your inheritances in heaven. And that it was never about this life, never about flesh and blood alone in this life. That... Peter says, is able to make you rejoice. It makes Christians able to rejoice in the midst of their suffering. Now, we need to talk about this joy for a minute. When Peter speaks of rejoicing and he speaks of this joy that Christians have in the midst of their suffering, he is not talking about a trite platitude. He is not talking about the facade of acting like you're okay and happy all the time with the way things are going. That's not what he's saying. I was reminded of... uh, Okay, so people of the 90s will remember R.E.M. song, Shiny Happy People. And then others of you will know that that was a Netflix documentary that exposed and, and poked fun at the evangelical Christian community for giving the appearance of being shiny, happy people who have it all together and they're happy, 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 where really under the surface a lot of darkness and terrible things were happening in one particular family, right? REM got that title, Shiny, Happy People. Did you know where it came from? I learned it this week. It came from Chairman Mao of Communist China who put up pictures of shiny, happy people. This abusive dictator who it is estimated was responsible for the starving of as many as 40 million people. Think about that. The propaganda was to put up pictures of his citizens who were smiley and happy. We love it here. We love our chairman of the Communist Party while 40 million people were starving. That's a facade. That's not real. And just like we don't want to communicate a 10 cent per minute gospel message, 
We don't want to be a people who are trite about happiness and who put up a a facade as if things are always great all the time. That's not what Peter is saying. Peter, what Peter is saying is that because the gospel is true, though you live through suffering and hardships and miseries and persecutions in this life, it doesn't mean that you're smiling all the time. These people knew what it was to have bad news, bad days, depression, sickness, disease, and death. He's not saying they're happy all the time. He's saying they have, quote, an inexpressible joy. Inexpressible means you can't put into words. You can't communicate humanly the joy that overcomes the sorrow. You can try to put it in words. You can try to put it in lyrics. But there is no way to humanly express or communicate what the joy of knowing that your eternity is secure, what that is really like. That's what Peter says. So any part of you where your background or experience with the church or with Christians is, I'm just smiley happy all the time. Everything's great. That's not what Peter is saying. He's saying you have access to a joy that is rooted in truth, not in feelings. Okay? Our joy has roots in truth. And our feelings, we're going to be depressed sometimes. We're going to be mad sometimes. We're going to be disappointed sometimes. We're going to have bad days. But we have a joy that sobers us, he says. He says, be sober-minded and fully alert. Remember what you have as an eternal inheritance. You got to live through your disease. You got to live through death. But there's something on the other side if your faith is in Jesus. That's the good news that Peter offers. That's what it is to rejoice. It is inexpressible. No smile is sufficient. No words are sufficient to communicate that joy. It is inexpressible because it's true. Amen? Amen. Thirdly and lastly, Christians are called to suffer, but they're able to rejoice because our overwhelming hope is set elsewhere. Our hope is set elsewhere. It is not in this life. Said a little bit differently, our hope is set for some day. Someday yet to come in the future. So two things about this. First, our hope is set. I want to think about that imagery and that language. Our hope is set. Some of you who have worked with concrete, some of you know what it is to try to get the concrete to set. Uh, Just yesterday, some of our youth, I'm looking for them, some of them installed a, a mailbox and they had to dig a hole and pour some wet concrete and try to get that thing level, right, up and down. And then they had to wait for the concrete to set, for it to harden, for it to to firm up. If you've ever laid tile uh, in a bathroom, you know the panic when you've messed up, and you're like, oh, the concrete is going to set. And once the concrete sets, once it dries, there's no moving it. It's fixed at that point, right? You're with me? Peter says our hope is set on a day yet to come. It's it's fixed. The time to tinker with with concrete is when it's wet cement. 
right? Once it's set, it is set and it is fixed forever, so to speak. Peter says our hope is set like concrete on a particular day that is yet to come. That's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 12. He says, after those saying those will persecute, you will be persecuted and insulted, he then says, Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, Jesus says it's always been this way. All the way back to the prophets. But your hope is in heaven. Your your hope is in the future. It's in one day. It is in some day that is coming. Don Carson says, It is the Christian worldview... The gospel alone that offers true stability through the darkest hours of suffering. Did you hear that? It's our worldview that God has given us. Our understanding of how the world works. It's through the gospel that the darkest hours of our suffering, we can have stability. We can have joy. Because we know these are light and momentary trials when compared to eternity. In that way, we can say that our hope defines us. Our hope defines who we are in this life. It defines our past, everything we were. It defines our present, who we are. And it certainly defines our future and who we will one day be when the Lord Jesus returns for His church. One day, someday, All things will be made right forever. That's the Christian worldview. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance, character. And character, hope. And our hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He says it is our sufferings in in this life that point us to glory. They make glory glory because we live through the hardships and sufferings of life in a sinful world. And now heaven becomes all the more. It becomes glory because of the gift of Jesus Christ. Now how are we going to tie all this up in such a way that it could go with us into the week that each of us will now go and live. Well, it's hard to to put these um, words of joy and the hope of heaven into words. Um, It's hard to put it into lyric form. But we do have one that we're going to hear sung to us in just a minute. I want to introduce you to the person known as Charles Tindley. Charles Tindley is a pretty unfamiliar name to us, but in the Christian church particularly in the African-American Christian church, his name is significant. This is who Charles Tinley was. He was born in 1851, 
died in 1933. He was the son of slaves. He taught himself to read at age 17. And while he was teaching himself to read, he served as a janitor, what they called a sexton, in the church. He taught himself to read, served as a janitor. He was so prolific as uh, one who taught himself to read, he decided he wanted to study Hebrew and Greek. So he started taking divinity school at night. And he learned Hebrew and Greek. And that man who had served as a janitor in his church would then be called as the pastor of that church. He took over a church of 130 people. This is a a Methodist church. And by the time that he died, that church of 130 had grown to 12,500 members. Charles Tinley is known as a father of American gospel music. And when I say that, some of you should probably think in your heads, that's awesome, but American gospel music has not always been the most faithful. That's true, actually. But this hymn I'm going to share with you is filled with faithfulness. It's filled with beauty. The hymn is called Beams of Heaven. And I want to explain it a little bit so that we can appreciate what we're hearing. Like many Negro spirituals, the emphasis of the song is heaven. It's the hope of heaven. And I think I've shared in in other sermons, oftentimes um, Anglo hymns of praise and songs uh, zero in on the beauty of justification and the beauty of sanctification. And those Boy, those are important hymns and lyrics to sing. But oftentimes our hymns don't emphasize so much glory and the hope of heaven. But it was the African American experience that said, you know what, our hope is not in this life. It's in the next. And so the Negro spirituals are filled with a longing for heaven, a hope for heaven. And this hymn, Beams of Heaven, is precisely that. So I want everyone to think, I want children particularly to think of this. We're living in the time, the season of the year, where you can go outside and it's cloudy and it's gray, but you'll get a moment where the sun bursts through the clouds and it's sudden, suddenly light and it feels like spring. But it's a short little window of sunlight. Then the clouds blow back over and block the sun and it feels like winter again. That's what this hymn is about. The beams of heaven are moments in this life where God gives us a taste of the glory to come and we have the hope of spring coming. But then the reality in a sin-broken world is the clouds overwhelm again. There's diagnosis, there's disease, there's discouragement, there's conflict. But every once in a while, there's a beam of heaven that reminds us It's never about this life. It's always about the next. It's what God is promising His people who have faith in Jesus. I'm going to emphasize one lyric. And Ben Meredith is going to come up and perform this as special music. It's what we call it. If we weren't in church, you'd call it a solo. But he's going to come up now and he's going to sing this to us as a ministry of the Word. 
And I want you to hear these lyrics with the hope of heaven. With everything that Peter has said, I want you to hear it and I want you to feel it. But here is some of the lyric uh, that that we'll hear sung to, uh, to us. Burdens now may crush me down. Disappointments all around. Troubles bring a mournful sigh. Sorrow and a tear-stained eye. Harder yet will be the fight. Right may often yield to might. Wickedness a while may reign. Satan's cause may seem to gain. But there's a God that rules above with hand of power and heart of love. And if I'm right, He'll fight my battle. I shall have peace someday. It's a hymn of tension. It's a hymn of, man, things down here are hard. But my hope is in someday. My hope is that one day, God will answer His promise and make all things as they should be. That's Peter's word to suffering Christians. It's the word to us today. Let's pray. Lord, would You sink these truths deep into our hearts, knowing that we are suffering the miseries of this life, knowing that some are being persecuted for their faith. But Lord, would You draw our attention heavenward, that it's all about someday, one day, when you will come again for your people and make all things right. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. That's always bright 
a day that never yields to night and in its light the streets of glory I shall be hold someday I shall be hold someday harder yet may be the fight right may often yield to might wickedness a while may reign Satan's cause may seem to gain but there's a God that rules above with hand of power and heart of love and if I'm right He'll fight my battle. I shall have peace someday. I shall have peace someday. Burdens now may crush me down disappointments all around troubles speak in mournful sigh sorrow through a tear-stained eye there is a world where pleasure reigns no morning soul shall roam its plains and to that land of peace and glory I shall want to go someday I shall want to go someday I shall get to go someday